My topic is Mark's Jesus, history or fantasy. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that it's the only sacred text of any major religion that subjects itself to historical inquiry. The Bhagavad Gita, the teachings of the compassionate Buddha, the Quran do not do that. Even early apocryphal texts like the Gospel of Thomas don't do that. The Gospel of Thomas, for example, is 114 sayings of Jesus without one place name ever mentioned, no miracles. It's talking head theology. It's unverifiable kind of information. The Bible speaks of real places with real play, uh, people, real events, and indexes it at times towards larger world events. So we know about uh, uh, Augustus Caesar and, and others. And it says, you can check out these witnesses, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says more than 500 brothers and sisters saw the risen Christ at one time. And he goes on and says, most of whom are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. He is saying that to say this information is historically verifiable. Why is the Bible like that? The incarnation of Jesus Christ gives us the model. When God became man in space-time history, what he's essentially saying is, you check me out. Don't just take somebody's word for it. Test to see if this is true. Examine the data for yourself. The incarnation gives us a methodological imperative to do serious historical investigation of the Bible. So, why Mark's gospel? Well, because they told me, I'm going to speak on Mark's gospel. (laughs) And uh, also because uh, I have a limited amount of time, I had to go with just one topic. These others are talking about other things. All of these topics are are really important. And and in fact, I'm really honored to be on the stage with uh, uh, such terrific scholars here. And uh, Justin Bass last night and how he uh, debated Bart Ehrman, I thought was absolutely fabulous. But why Mark's gospel? Well, because most scholars today would say that Mark's gospel was the earliest of the four gospels. It's a broad consensus with a few dissenters here and there, but it's something that most scholars, both evangelical, moderates, and liberals, would all say, yeah, Mark's was the earliest gospel. And consequently, it's the most primitive gospel. It might be the most unpolished gospel. If there's any gospel that both conservatives and liberals alike would say, this gets us closest to the authentic Jesus, they'd say it's Mark's gospel. Now, evangelicals would also say, yeah, the other gospels, though, they're going to tell us the truth about Jesus, too. But liberals, let's just stick to Mark, typically. But here's the warning. Here comes the necessary preliminary technical stuff, and I don't want this to happen to you. Now, over the years, I've been a teacher at Dallas Seminary for about 30 years, and I've I've had a very nasty habit of noticing when students fell asleep in class, which unfortunately happened way too frequently in my classes. Um, and so I started asking for morning classes rather than those right after lunch. And uh, so that way they'd be waking up by the end of the hour rather than the other way around. And so I'd notice when students would fall asleep, and that's when I made a mental note. This is what I'm going to quiz them on, the stuff that they're sleeping over right now. So 
don't let this happen to you because the quiz that's coming later today, I'm going to watch the audience and you'll find out, oh, that's right, there's no quiz in here. Okay. Anyway, here's the technical stuff. What I hold to is called the two-source hypothesis, also known as Markin priority. This was developed by H.J. Holtzman in 1863, and it has become the predominant view. In fact, uh, 40 years ago, it was said that finally, here's one of the settled results of uh, New Testament scholarship, the two-source hypothesis at least. Here's what it is. Matthew and Luke each used two sources. Each of them used Mark's gospel independently of each other. They didn't know about each other's writings. And they also used a document known as Q. Now, some of you have probably heard of Q, and Q has become kind of the boogeyman for evangelicals. Q is, oh, no, it, it can't possibly exist. How could there be a Q? Because we, we have no shred of evidence of Q. Well, Q stands for quella, German for source. And all it means is the common material between Matthew and Luke that's not found in Mark. Over 250 verses are shared between Matthew and Luke that are not found in Mark's gospel. There's got to be some source that they both used. Was it a written source? Was it an oral source? My answer is yes, probably both. And the reason we don't have any documents of cues is because they simply got completely absorbed by Matthew and Luke. But this is the standard view that critical scholars hold to, and uh, Q is not something that evangelicals say is evil, unless they're uh, uh, way too conservative. But uh, we, won't, we, we won't get into that. That's not where the, the issues are for today. All right. So the question is, is our earliest source speaking of an authentic Jesus? If so, then Matthew and Luke are also generally reliable. Now, you might want to debate that by saying, well, they seem to change what's going on in Mark in some places. Yes, but what are those changes? And I think that's what Dr. Bach addressed to some degree about accuracy versus precision. But if they are not, if Mark is not reliable, then can we trust any of the Gospels to tell us the truth about Jesus? So there's a lot that's writing on Mark. Many scholars considered Mark to be the reliable source, the most reliable source for the historical Jesus, simply because it's the most primitive. After Holtzman comes out with his hypothesis, which really uh, a lot of scholars grabbed onto, and uh, quite a number of them said, now finally we have something that is of extreme value. There have been, in the last 20 years, more commentaries written on Mark's gospel than there were in the first millennium. And uh, the reason is because scholars have all of a sudden discovered this gospel is important. It's not something that just is a, a digest of Matthew and Luke. It's not the third gospel. It's actually the first, and it gives us very important early information. Is it telling the truth? Many thought it was. Until a fellow by the name of William Vreda wrote Messias Geheimnis, or in English, The Messianic Secret, and this came out in 1901. Well, what did he have to say? What he argued is that in this messianic secret, when Jesus commands people to keep his identity secret, those statements, especially in Mark's gospel, were not historical. He not only commands people, but he also commands demons to keep his identity secret. 
but in, instead they were invented by Mark or the early church, and then Mark would put him into his gospel. And it presumably explained why Jesus did not call himself Messiah in public. That is, that's because he never claimed to be Messiah, is what Vreda would argue. The early church therefore imported its theology of Jesus as the Messiah back into the Gospel of Mark by saying that the messianic secret is completely made up by the church means, well, uh, Jesus really never claimed to be Messiah. He's not the Christ. And so Mark's Gospel, even though it's the earliest source, is filled with propaganda and is unreliable and largely unhistorical. Now that view, the messianic secret, was presupposed by much of liberal scholarship for over a century. It came out in 1901. And especially in Germany, it has had a huge influence. And with it, a low view of historicity in Mark's gospel. If there's a low view of historicity in Mark, there's even a lower view in Luke and Matthew and especially John. But there's some serious problems with the messianic secret. And I'm just going to mention two of them quickly. In Paul's letters that were written, they started to be written within two decades of the crucifixion, he uses the word Christ over and over and over again, obviously. He speaks of Jesus Christ and Christ Jesus. And Christ is simply the Greek translation of Mashiach or Messiah. He uses it so frequently that it has virtually lost its force as a title to his Gentile audiences. It has become a name. In a lot of respects, it has become Jesus' last name. Who is this guy? Jesus Christ. How could that happen if this was a recent invention of the church? If the idea of Jesus as the Christ was a recent invention that happened decades after Jesus actually lived, how could it lose that force of referring to Jesus as the Messiah and simply be part of Jesus' name? It's very difficult to explain that. And then you go back earlier and you look at the, the placard that was placed over uh, the cross uh, when, when Jesus hung there that said, King of the Jews, Pilate puts it there, and the Pharisees object and said, No, you should say, he said he was King of the Jews. I have written what I've written. Here it is. How does that term come about? Where did Pilate get that idea? Well, certainly when the Sanhedrin handed him over to Pilate, they were telling him what his claims were. And they had to put Jesus' claims in terms that a Gentile, Pilate, could understand. They can't say, he claimed to be Messiah. Well, he's going to say, what in the world are you talking about? That's, you're talking Greek to me. Well, I guess Aramaic, actually, because he would have known Greek. I asked the, I asked the Greeks that question one time, because I've, I've been to Greece now two dozen times. I say, we say, that's Greek to me. What do you guys say? Uh, and, and they said... Uh, we say it's Chinese to me. So they actually did have that phrase. So anyway, that, that, that was for you. You won't need to remember that for the quiz. But um, where does King of the Jews come from? The Sanhedrin is telling Pilate why they were condemning Jesus because he claimed to be, in Pilate's world, king. That meant that he must have claimed to be Messiah before the Sanhedrin. So there have been a lot of scholars that have disregarded this, said the messianic uh, uh, secret that Vreda wrote really is no longer valid. So it, comes, it brings us back to square one. Is Mark reliable? Is he telling us the truth? Is there myth? Is there figment? And one of the basic issues that scholars have really struggled with is what kind of a document is this? Is it meant to be history? Is it meant to be bi- biography? Is it meant to be myth? 
And so there are modern attacks on Marx's historicity, and let me just give you two illustrations for sake of time. First of all, Burton Mack wrote a very famous book. He's a professor at Claremont University uh, out in California, where I wish I were right now. Uh, but uh, I, I'm, I'm a four-generation Californian, grew up as a surfer, and uh, uh, the, the surf sucks in Dallas. I mean, it's just... <laughs> anyway, Claremont is close to some pretty nice beaches, too. So he wrote this book, a very thick book, A Myth of Innocence, Mark and Christian Origins. Well, you can tell where that's going with a title like that. It's as if to say, you know, Mark may be viewed by many people as giving us some pretty decent history about Jesus, but it's a myth of innocence. There's myth all over the place in it. And he says on page 323, the passion narrative, this is about the last week of Jesus' life up until the crucifixion, is simply the climax of a new storyline. The story was a new myth of origins. Now, let me mention somebody who may be known to you a little bit better. That's Robert Funk, who headed up the Jesus Seminar. You may have heard of the Jesus Seminar. They produced, uh, the first book they produced was called The Five Gospels. And what these scholars did, there were 84 of them who met over an eight-year period twice a year, and Funk organized this whole thing. Now, a lot of the scholars were marginal scholars that, that some didn't have really... I think one guy was uh, in, in, involved in Hollywood movies, but he still got a, a chance to vote on these things. But most of them had some credentials at least. And they voted on whether Jesus said something. Then later they had uh, years to vote on whether Jesus did something. And how they voted was this. They had a jar where each one of the scholars, after they discuss each story about Jesus and, and whether he said things or not, they would have a red pebble or a pink pebble, or a gray pebble, or a black pebble. That's what, what uh, Funk called these things, were pebbles. And they would throw into the jar which one they thought represented how close this was to Jesus. Red meant, yes, these are the words of Jesus. Pink meant, no, probably not the words of Jesus, but the idea almost certainly goes back to Jesus. The thought does. Gray meant, the words definitely don't. The thought almost surely doesn't. But we're not exactly sure. Maybe it could, but on, on likelihood, probably not. Black meant no way was this Jesus. Now, it's interesting the criteria they came up with, and I won't get into the details, but I will, I will simply say that of our Gospels, there's actually more material that is... They published a book called The Five Gospels. They included the Gospel according to Thomas. And there's more material that is in red in Thomas than we have in most of the Gospels of the New Testament. Thomas, that's a second century document, uh, they think is more authentic on the words of Jesus than uh, our canonical Gospels. Well, here's a picture of these pebbles, so-called pebbles. Uh, these were given to me by Robert Funk. We, we actually worked for several years. I was not on the Jesus Seminar, uh, but we worked on uh, an international Greek grammar, uh, trying to revise it. And... Uh, one day he came to the meeting, we'd meet twice a year, and he, he came and he brought these, these are not pebbles, these are these little dowel pins that you put into wood after you insert a screw and it goes down deep, you just put that pin in on top so it, it goes flush. He took these things, painted them, these uh, four different colors in his garage, and it was something that could capture the public's attention. So, 
They've got something like 20% of the words of Jesus in the Gospels are authentic, is what uh, the Jesus Seminar came out with. And Funk and the Jesus Seminar had this to say about Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels is an imaginative theological construct into which has been woven traces of that enigmatic sage from Nazareth, traces that cry out for recognition and liberation from the grip of those whose faith has overpowered their memories, whose faith has overpowered their memories. We're going to come back to this issue about did the gospel writers really have such bad memories? And we'll deal with that a little bit later. The search for the authentic Jesus is a search for the forgotten Jesus. Well, you kind of get a picture of where he's going and what his views are with that kind of an introduction. Well, Martin Hengel is a scholar who died just a few years ago. Hengel was perhaps the greatest scholar in Europe of the last century on early Christianity, a brilliant scholar, German scholar at the University of Tübingen, which for many, many years, actually centuries, was uh, uh, considered a, a pretty liberal school. And Hengel was a conservative scholar and very well respected. In his book, Studies in the Gospel of Mark, he, he complains about these, these different views of Mark's gospel that come out. He says, Mark simply becomes a cryptogram for these scholars, the key to which has to be guessed at. We are at the threshold of a new epoch of exegetical whim. Well, our approach to Mark's Jesus, history or fantasy, is fivefold, and this is how we're going to take this. First of all, we're going to wrestle with the question of the text. Do we even know what Mark wrote? It's an important question. How do we know that we have what Mark's gospel really is all about? Because we don't have the original manuscripts anymore. Secondly, we'll deal with the gospel according to Peter. You've probably never heard of that gospel before. I'll tell you about it. Third, memory in an oral culture, and I'll define what that's all about. Fourth, what's in a name? And five, embarrassing stories about Jesus. All this is going to help us to think about whether Mark's Jesus is history or fantasy. And you're going, how in the world does any of this relate to that subject? Well, pay attention and you'll find out. Quit, quit, just quit your belly aching and you'll get this. So, okay, here we go. I, I saw the faces. All right. Let's start with the text. Do we even know what Mark wrote? Once again, Robert Funk in the Jesus Seminar says this, the temporal gap that separates Jesus from the first surviving copies of the Gospels, about 175 years. He's, he's dead wrong about that, by the way. The actual first surviving copies of the Gospels, their fragments, are within decades, but not 175 years. Within 150 years, we have 43% of all the New Testament verses found in uh, the manuscripts. You'll see some of the statistics here in a little bit. But nevertheless, let's even assume this is true. This 175-year period corresponds to the lapse in time from 1776, the writing of the Declaration of Independence, to 1950. What if the oldest copies of the founding document dated only from 1950? Well, he's raising a question to say, are you kidding? Would we trust that? Of course we wouldn't trust that. That comes so late. How do we know what was actually written in 1776? Well, one of the problems that these skeptics 
have is they don't look at other ancient Greco-Roman literature. Almost none of them do. But we're going to do that. Let's compare what he said about the New Testament to the writings about Alexander the Great, who most of you, I think, probably think was a genuine historical figure. And I would agree with that. Lived in the 4th century B.C. We have five contemporaries of Alexander who wrote about him, who wrote about his life. All of their writings are lost. The earliest biography of Alexander that is extant, that is, that is it exists, we, we, we have the data, is by Diodorus Siculus, who wrote in the 1st century B.C., about 300 years after Alexander's life. That's the earliest biography. The most reliable one, though, is by Arian, 1st and 2nd century A.D., about half a millennium after Alexander wrote. 175 years is what Funk says for the earliest copies we have of the Gospels. And here I'm saying the uh, most reliable biography of Alexander comes half a millennium later. But there's more of a difference. That was comparing the original of these authors to Alexander. What about the copies of these guys? The copies of the New Testament are late. That's what uh, Funk says. Well, let's again compare it to Diodorus Siculus and to Arian. Siculus, the oldest manuscript we have is from the 9th century A.D. Here he's writing in the 1st century B.C. Our oldest copy of what he wrote comes a thousand years later. And yet, scholars aren't saying we have to throw out everything that he said. That oldest copy is a thousand years later. We have no idea if, if Alexander even lived. That's not what they say. Arian, our most reliable source... The oldest manuscript is about A.D. 1200. Again, about a thousand years after the time that he lived. That's our oldest copy of Arian's writings. So you talk about 175 years for the Gospels and a thousand years for these guys on Alexander the Great. It's a huge difference. Let me compare it to some others just very, very briefly. These are some well-known Greco-Roman historians and biographers. And each one of them, Pliny the Elder, Plutarch, Josephus, Polybius, through Pausanias... There's not a single manuscript of their writings until 700 years, 800 years, 800, 1200, finally 1400 for Pausanias. Not one manuscript, not one copy of their writings until that much later. These are well-known historians and biographers. Pausanias was a geographer as well. Now, Herodotus, who was one of the two great historians in the 5th century BC, who's really considered to be the father of history, in the sense that he, he wrote how to do history. In his book, Histories, we are waiting 1,500 years before we get more than just small scraps of papyri of Herodotus's histories. 1,500 years. Almost 10 times as much time as what Funk says for the Gospels. And Xenophon's Hellenica, we're waiting 1,800 years to get our first substantial manuscript. And yet scholars who study these books don't say, we have to throw all this out. There's no way we can trust it. Everything has changed. They say, this is what we've got to deal with. And you know what they also say? We sure wish our problems were the problems of New Testament scholars because they have an embarrassment of riches while we have a dearth of data. The average Greco-Roman author has one thousandth as much material as the New Testament manuscripts have. In other words, we have a thousand times more manuscripts for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author. 
If the New Testament were in the shape of Xenophon's Hellenica, it would be like saying that our earliest substantial copy of the New Testament, earliest one, was written at about the time the Wright brothers invented the airplane. Would skeptics have a field day then? 175 years compared to what we're dealing with Xenophon, I don't think they're looking at the other data, at Greco-Roman literature. If they're going to be skeptical about the New Testament like that, on average, they need to be a thousand times more skeptical about the rest of Greco-Roman data. Well, let me just briefly show you what the statistics really look like. By the way, I've known Bob Funk for years. He's, he's no longer with us. And quite frankly, he knew very little about this discipline known as textual criticism, the manuscripts. And uh, so uh, his comments, frankly, are, are, are spoken out of ignorance. In the second century, we have as many as a dozen New Testament manuscripts even though they're all fragmentary, all of our papyri are fragmentary, our earliest manuscript of Paul's letters, written about A.D. 200, has 86 leaves of an original 104 leaves. That's a huge amount of data that we have within 130 years of Paul's life. Within the 3rd century, as many as 61, you see as the centuries go on, we get all the way up to the 10th century, 900 years after the completion of the New Testament, we have 967 Greek New Testament manuscripts that still exist. If you take this one more century, so we're talking about a thousand years after the completion of the New Testament, we have officially 1,807 Greek New Testament manuscripts, 1,000 years after the completion of the New Testament. I said officially because in this last year, CSNTM has discovered 10 more at the National Library of Greece in Athens that haven't been cataloged yet because the Germans don't know about it. They're the official catalogers of this. Okay, well, here's a nice little statistic. There are four times more New Testament manuscripts within the first 200 years than the average Greco-Roman author has in 2,000 years. So remember, Funk's statement, 175 years, how could we possibly trust any of this? Compare it to Greco-Roman literature. Within 900 years of the New Testament's completion, almost 1,000 manuscripts in Greek alone. I haven't counted the ones in the other languages. Within 900 years of the average classical author's writings, zero manuscripts. And yet, no one is saying Alexander the Great didn't live. No one is saying that Cicero didn't live. These manuscripts come later. It's what scholars rely on but they just don't have the evidence that the New Testament scholars have. And so to make the kind of argument that, oh, well, look how late our manuscripts are, uh, that one's not going to sail. Okay, second argument, the gospel according to, to Peter. You ever heard of this gospel? Well, you shouldn't have because it's the gospel according to Mark. It's not called the gospel according to Peter, but it is from Peter, largely. I'm going to give you two pieces of evidence, external evidence and internal evidence. Internal, external has to do with what others said as to who was the source that Mark used and who was the author of this gospel. Internal evidence, so we're talking about early church fathers. Internal evidence is, is there any evidence inside of Mark's gospel that gives us a clue? And the external evidence is ancient, unanimous, and extensive testimony that Mark got his information about Jesus from Peter. 
goes all the way back to Papias, who wrote sometime between A.D. 95 and 120. And he may have been a disciple of John the Apostle. That's what Irenaeus says. If not, he was one generation removed from John the Apostle, and that would be at most. Papias says this, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, all sorts of other church fathers. The testimony is unanimous, it's extensive, and it's ancient. Mark got his information about Jesus from Peter. So look at, let's look at what Papias has to say. He says, uh, according to Irenaeus, that, uh, or Irenaeus says that Papias was a hero of John. He meant John the Apostle. There are some who doubt that, and we're not going to get into that issue. But here in, in the fragments of Papias, that's all we have is a number of fragments of what he wrote. He said, and the elder, that is John, said this, Mark became an interpreter of Peter. As many things as he remembered, he wrote down accurately. And then he makes this mild complaint, though certainly not in order, the things said or done by the Lord. That's really significant. Some, some evangelicals say that the, the material we have about Jesus' life in the Gospels must be in absolute chronological sequence. Well, even our very first early statement about this says, no, Mark's Gospel isn't that way. Well, if Mark isn't in chronological order, the others aren't either. And then he goes on and he says, for he neither heard the Lord nor followed him. But he came later, as he said with reference to Peter, who taught whenever the need arose, but he did not teach according to the arrangement of the oracles of the Lord, with the result that Mark did not err when he thus wrote certain things as he recalled them. For he planned out one goal ahead of time, namely, to leave out nothing which he heard, and not to falsify any of the words of Peter. This is our earliest testimony about Mark's gospel. He got his gospel from Peter. He got it right. He was accurate. He left nothing out from what Peter said, but he didn't put things in order. Well, skeptics will say there was an impulse in the ancient world, in the ancient Christian world, to attach an apostle's name to a book. And they're absolutely right. But Bart Ehrman, in his book Forged, says that most of the New Testament books are not written by the people whose names are attributed to those books. And he says, it's because of this impulse. Well, let's ask the question, why wasn't Mark's gospel ever called the gospel according to Peter? There was a strong desire to have, see these books as written by apostles. Why is this never called the gospel according to Peter? It's called the gospel according to Mark. That should tell us that the ancient church was trying to be accurate with reference to authorship. They all said he got it from Peter. Why not call it the gospel of Peter? I mean, that's, that's fudging a little bit. It's not really a big deal. Let's just do that. But they don't. It's the gospel according to Mark. But this impulse to attach a name, we do see this in several so-called Christian books, like the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary, Paul's letter to the Laodiceans. I bet you haven't read that one for a while or the Apocalypse of Peter. These are all later apocryphal books that come in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. And they all put those names prominently in those books. Why? Because the canon was already closing. The, the, the New Testament documents were seen as already authoritative. The Gospel of Thomas comes along. How am I going to get this thing to be accepted by others? Well, let's put an authoritative name on it, an apostle's name. That will give it instant credibility because it's starting late in the game. We've got to make sure people know this really is by Thomas. Well, there was a small sector of the church that bought it for a while, but after a while they all recognized, no, there's, this is not the same thing. 
There's 3 Corinthians that was done by a pious follower of Paul, but it wasn't by Paul. So this is an impulse that we do see in the second and later centuries. But what about the New Testament Gospels? We see a different impulse altogether. All of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were anonymous originally. Did you know that? Those names were added. The titles would have been added as soon as more than one was known in a particular region. Now, how soon would that happen? Well, here's a way to think about it. If Matthew and Luke both used Mark's gospel, and they're writing it about the same time as each other, and they are writing at least within two decades of when Mark wrote, I think within just a few years, but at least within two decades, that means that within a couple of decades, Mark's gospel is getting disseminated in more than one place because both Matthew and Luke were in different locations using a different copy of Mark. How much longer would it take before their copies now are disseminated? If Matthew's using Mark, then he writes his gospel. Now in that same region, there's a copy of Mark and there's a copy of Matthew. As soon as two gospels would be known, which had to have happened in the first century, as long as these gospels are first century documents, then the titles would be added to these gospels. And what's really interesting is that the titles never deviated on authorship. It's unanimous. Mark is always called the gospel according to Mark. It's never called, by the way, the gospel of Mark. In all the manuscripts, it says according to Mark. Same with Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. This according to, that whole point meant there's one gospel. There's one good news about Jesus Christ, and there's four ancient authors who are giving their portrait of Jesus, their story of Jesus that is based on this good news. But these titles never deviated, and the authorship question was settled very early on, even though those books were anonymous originally. Now, if there if there's no disagreement, that tells us that this must have happened during their lifetimes, or at least shortly thereafter when it was known who wrote these books. That's really a remarkable impulse, and that Mark's gospel says the gospel according to Mark is a significant thing to argue that Peter was the source behind it because of that early testimony that did not go in the direction of saying this is the gospel according to Peter, but they did say he got it from Peter. Well, there's internal evidence for this, too. C.E.B. Cranfield, in his book, The Gospel According to St. Mark, is one of those uh, uh, most underrated commentaries on uh, Mark's gospel. Here's, here's my, my copy of it. He wrote it in the 50s and revised it later in the 70s. He has some great stuff to say. And he says, uh, among other things, that there is a striking contrast between passages in vividness of detail. Where Mark did not find vivid details in his sources, he refrained from creating them. In other words, there's some stories where the details, uh, the, the, the casting out of the demons, uh, legion, uh, for example, in Mark 5, other stories where it's great detail. Other time, it's a much more bland story. This strongly suggests that Mark got some of his material from an eyewitness, and the testimony consistently is Peter, other information from isolated sources, and those isolated sources may not have had as much detail to them. It's almost a patchwork gospel in that sense. And then Cranfield goes on, he says, there's also a striking contrast 
in chronological notations. Just read through Mark's gospel sometime. You'll see a fascinating thing. When Mark had received a tradition unit, that means a story about Jesus, self-contained story, in isolation and had no reliable information as to its historical context, he refrained from creating suitable geographical and temporal details, that is, creating them out of nothing, to link it with the context in which he decided to place it. How does Mark link those isolated stories about Jesus? Does he say, and then Jesus said this? No, he says, and, and goes to the next story. It's remarkable. And when he, when he connects them chronologically, Cranfield is arguing he's got reliable material to do that. Well, in light of Mark's self-evident restraint, that is, his lack of imaginative fabrications in his use of sources, coupled with the vivid details that are best explained by those given by an eyewitness, it would seem, Cranfield says in his typical British understatement, that a very great confidence in the gospel's reliability is justified. Okay, that's Mark's gospel as Peter's gospel. Third argument is memory in an oral culture. How good was memory in the ancient world? And by oral cultures, I mean those that don't rely on written texts where everybody is literate or most of the people are literate or even half the people are literate. Oral cultures where people did not own their own books. John Dominic Crossan, who is a uh, liberal New Testament scholar, a brilliant gospel scholar, uh, and, and very liberal, uh, in his book, The Birth of Christianity, speaks about the explosion of the space shuttle Challenger in 1986. And by the way, if you were at the debate last night between Justin Bass and Bart Ehrman, Ehrman uses this entire story, what he, what he does to talk about the space shutter, shuttle Challenger and the students and all this, he gets right out of uh, Crossan's book, The Birth of Christianity. Well, when this happened, when this disaster happened, there was an experiment with 115 students at Emory University where uh, the teacher asked if they'd take a questionnaire within 24 hours of the explosion. Forty of them said yes. It was a psychology class. So the questionnaire basically asked them details about where they were, uh, how they heard about the explosion, who told them, uh, what the context was of the whole thing. And then two and a half years later, they gave those same 40 students the questionnaire again. And so how good was their memory? 24 hours. And then how good was it two and a half years later? This is the, the uh, illustration that Crossan likes to use. After two and a half years, all 40 students forgot something about the circumstances in which they first heard about the explosion. And when those second versions were compared with the first ones for accuracy and graded on a zero to seven scale for major location activity informant and minor time and other attributes of the event, the mean was 2.95 out of a possible seven. In other words... Most people forgot most things from something that was this important. Well, Crossan likes to say, that's how our memory is. How could we possibly trust the apostles to remember all the things that Jesus said and did? How can we possibly trust these gospel writers to get it right? Memories give way to faith, as uh, uh, Funk said in uh, the five gospels. Well, let me give you a critique of Crossan's illustration. 
There's three fundamental problems with it, and they are huge. First is personal involvement and relevance. And by the way, this is like the issue that's going on in terms of historicity in the Gospels and reliability is memory in an oral culture today. The second is ancient oral cultures versus modern written cultures. And third is memory and community. All right, let's address each one of these. Personal involvement and relevance. Let's talk about Jesus and his message. It touched the core of everyone's being. Nobody was neutral about Jesus. When, when, when he did things, when he said things, when he performed miracles, it was life-changing. People were there and they saw it. And because they were eyewitnesses, they remembered it, it was deeply embedded, uh, far more so than hearing something from somebody else who tells you about uh, a, a space shuttle crash. Well, the Challenger explosion, although it was a terrible tragedy, there was zero personal involvement for these students at Emory University. And frankly, minimal relevance to their life. Terrible tragedy, but it's not going to affect how they think and, and wrestle with life from that point on. That's a huge difference. The more personally involved we are with things, the more relevant they are, the better we remember them typically. So when I read this, in uh, uh, Crossan's book, I decided I would do my own test. Now, it was a few years after he wrote it, and my 40th high school reunion was coming up. I know I only look like I'm 25, so that's impossible. But, um, and the gray hair is because I had Nika as a student. <laughs> and Nathan, too. I should mention him. Anyway, I did my own test on this. JFK's assassination was far more personal and relevant to us. It affected the entire nation in some deep and profound and abiding ways, far more so than the challenger did. And so for my 40th high school reunion uh, just last week, no, no, it was a few years ago, I'm afraid, but anyway, um, it was a big deal. We had almost half of all the class, 500 students, came to this reunion in uh, Newport Beach and uh, we had a Facebook discussion, so everybody's joining this discussion. And I decided, I'm just going to try an experiment without them knowing what this is all about. So I wrote to everybody, and I said, okay, let me ask you, do you know where you were and what the circumstances were when you found out about JFK's assassination? There was an immediate response from dozens of people. Some of them said, are you crazy? Of course. Who could forget that? Others were telling us exactly the details of, of their situation. Now, what was most interesting was that I went to an elementary school in a different part of the city, then moved later. So the high school I went to didn't have too many kids from that elementary school uh, when JFK was assassinated. But there were some people that were in my class, and they told where they were when it happened. It was exactly the same memory that I had. We were in sixth grade. Spanish was uh, being taught to us on television, and the news broke in, because that's how they, they had to teach Spanish when the teacher didn't know Spanish. And, uh, and, and, and the news broke in on television while we're in class, and that's how we found out. So we were among the earliest ones to find out. And all of us said, we have no doubt about our memories on this, and it's the kind of a thing that's far more personal, far more relevant. Okay. Now, what about ancient oral cultures versus modern written cultures? Well, 
in the last 2,000 years, we've made technological progress and intellectual regress. There have been three major technological improvements, if you will, or inventions that have given us reading material. The first was from the scroll to the book form or to the codex form. Now, the scroll was the ancient book form, and that's what Jesus read in in Luke 4 when he's trying to find his place in Isaiah, and it says he had to find his place in Isaiah. He's rolling out this Isaiah scroll to find Isaiah 61. The scroll was the ancient book form until the late first century. And then someone, we don't know who, invented the codex. Now, a codex is a book form that is bound on one side, and it has cut pages, If you're under the age of 30, you probably have never seen a codex because the only form of book that you know is on your computer screen and you've gone retro on us because that's where you have to scroll. This is a codex. See, it's got cut pages. You can get to where you want to quick. It's an amazing invention. You should try it sometime. We don't know who invented it, but one of the interesting things is in the first five centuries of the Christian era, we know that Christians popularized it and nobody else. For those first 500 years, 80% of all Christian books were written on a codex. Only 20% of all non-Christian books were written on a codex. So it was the first time and probably the only time in Christian history where we have been ahead of the technological curve. So... Why does this make a difference? Because the codex could be written on both sides. Therefore, you could save more money because you could put twice as much material in it. Therefore, books were cheaper. Therefore, more people could buy them. Then the second major stage was from the handwritten book to the printing press. 1453, uh, I'm sorry, 1454 is when uh, uh, Gutenberg invents the printing press. And all of a sudden, books could be made significantly cheaper. Even then, Luther says, you know, you Germans, uh, you should memorize the, the book of Romans. He just wrote a commentary on Romans. I'll show you that quote in a minute. But once the printing press comes along, more and more people could afford books. More and more people didn't have to memorize something that they only had access to every once in a while. And then finally, from the shift, this technological shift that we're all in right now, from paper to a computer screen... Most people don't even read a whole paragraph anymore. They Google a key word they're looking for. Ah, that's the phrase I need. When was the last time you actually read a whole book? We are moving further and further away from a memorizing culture, which had to be how it was in the ancient world. And it doesn't have to be that way now. So shortly after the invention of the printing press, Luther, in his preface to Romans, and shortly after he had published the first German New Testament, People had never seen it in their own language before. He says in his preface, This epistle is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. What Luther is saying is, you know, you guys need to memorize the book of Romans. Now, how many pastors are going to survive their time in a church if they say, by the way, folks, we're starting a study of Romans. Memorize it. It's not going to last. Things have changed. Berger Gerhardson wrote, in the tradition of Western culture, it is only in our own day that the memory has been effectively unloaded into books. Not until our own day have we learned to accept a form of education which to a great extent consists of being able to find the material which is required in the right books without needing to carry it all in the memory. 
Not until our day has the pedagogical revolution taken place, which has been called the, the, the dethronement of memory. This is the one area where scholars who are liberal about the Gospels do not make a concession. They don't look at how memory worked in the ancient world. Well, then there's memory and community, another thing that is not remembered by them. The stories about Jesus were constantly proclaimed. Both friendly and hostile witnesses would correct any errors in the stories about him. And this would go on. So when someone tells the story about Jesus, tells one of the uh, uh, incidents in his life, someone's going to say, wait a minute, I was there. Let Let me correct you on that. And so this memory did not happen in isolation. When the Challenger explosion happened, two and a half years later, these students almost surely were not talking about it every day for two and a half years. And even with the JFK assassination, it wasn't something that we all talked about. I probably did it maybe a dozen times in the uh, almost 50 years since it happened uh, with, with people telling, I know where I was when JFK was assassinated. And yet it was a locked-in memory. How much more is the memory going to be that certain if you have memory in community? The Gospels were, weren't written in a vacuum. They were written after this memory in community was going on over and over and over again, where the stories of Jesus were repeated hundreds of times. Let me just give you a a hypothesis. And uh, this is my sanctified imagination. We don't know the details of this, but we know that this kind of thing certainly happened. How often would Peter preach all the stories about Jesus that are recorded in Mark's gospel? Well, conservatively, let's say he would preach these stories about once a month. So you get all of Peter's proclamation that Mark records about once a month in his preaching. Now, I'm going to make some really conservative guesses here. Mark is written as early as AD 57. That's earlier than most scholars data, but let's just call it that. Jesus' death is either AD 30 or 33. Let's go with the later date. What this does is now this gives us the least amount of time for Peter to proclaim these things until Mark's gospel was written. It gives us 24 years. And in that time, Peter would have preached these stories 300 times. That's not just memory and community. That's memory of something that is declared publicly where eyewitnesses can check it. It's a remarkable thing. And this is the kind of thing that skeptics simply don't talk about. Well, the summary is... uh, A great statement by a scholar, and you'll see at the end, or I'll tell you at the end, uh, how long ago this was written. This is by Vincent Taylor, and he says, It is on this question of eyewitnesses that form criticism presents a very vulnerable front. If the form critics are right, the disciples must have been translated to heaven immediately after the resurrection. As Boltmann sees it, the primitive community exists in isolation, cut off from its founders by the walls of an inexplicable ignorance. Like Robinson Crusoe, it must do the best it can. Unable to turn to anyone for information, it must invent situations for the words of Jesus and put into his lips sayings which personal memory cannot check. All this is absurd. However disturbing to the smooth working of theories, the influence of eyewitnesses on the formation of the tradition cannot possibly be ignored. The 120 at Pentecost did not go into permanent retreat. They didn't get raptured. Uh, For at least a generation, they moved among the young Palestinian communities. And through preaching and fellowship, their recollections were at the disposal of those who sought information. 
That's memory and community. But when all the qualifications have been made, the presence of personal testimony is an element in the formative process which it is folly to ignore. Vincent Taylor, The Formation of the Gospel Tradition, this argument has never successfully been refuted. And it was written in 1933. All right, what's in a name? My time is short. I am going to have to skip over this section. But because this is being videoed, at least I'll leave it up so that you can look at the videos later. I think it's a video, not just an audio. So uh, I won't say anything here. You'll just see these things. This way I get to be quiet, and you're happy about that, I'm sure. People are going to wonder what happened to the audio when they watch this. Well, I wish I had time to cover that, but I've got just a few minutes left. So let me finally talk to you about embarrassing stories about Jesus and how this argues for historical reliability. Cranfield, again, in his gospel according to St. Mark, says something that almost all gospel scholars would agree with as one of the criteria we should use to recognize historical authenticity. The presence in this gospel of a number of features which must have been liable to offend or perplex and which are either omitted or modified in Matthew and or Luke suggests that Mark made no attempt to smooth away the difficulties he found but reproduced his sources with remarkable frankness. This is known as the criterion of embarrassment. Mark's gospel and even Matthew and Luke have things in there that really technically should be embarrassing to the early church. Why would they invent that? There's no reason to invent that. It's embarrassing stories even about Jesus. I'll just give you three illustrations that are found in Mark's gospel, and uh, two of these are not found in, in Matthew and Luke in the same way. The first is the baptism of Jesus. In Mark 1, we read, In the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. People from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem were going out to him. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. Four verses later. Now, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan River. Period. Doesn't say, oh, but he didn't confess his sins. He did confess his sins. It doesn't tell us that. Mark leaves that open-ended. This is one of those things that is one of the most sure things in the life of Jesus by any scholar. He was baptized by John because John's baptism was a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. It was a baptism where people confess their sins. And so we have to explain why would he baptize Jesus. Now, I think Mark gives us sufficient clues that Jesus was not there as a sinner, but they're very subtle. And he's doing that on purpose, but that's a different story that I don't have time to get into today. Let me give you another illustration. The healing of the blind man with spittle. There's two stories in Mark's gospel where spittle is used for the healing. These are the only two miracles that Jesus performs in Mark's gospel that are not found in either Matthew or Luke. All of the other miracles he performs are found in at least Matthew or Luke. All of them. 
except for these two. Why is that? It's disgusting. That's why. I mean, well, let's just take a look at this. In Mark 7, he uh, puts spit in a guy's ears and heals, heals his uh, hearing. And here in Mark 8, it escalates. Then they came to Bethsaida. They, found, they brought a, a blind man to Jesus and asked him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and brought him outside the village. Then he spit on his eyes. Now, in the ancient world, spittle was used for healing. It was never used to hawk a loogie in a guy's face for healing, though. And this poor blind man didn't see it coming, literally, you know. Now, here's the remarkable thing about it. He placed his hands on his eyes and he asked, do you see anything? This is the only time Jesus ever asked if a miracle worked. I mean, something is disgusting. Is that, hey, hey, did this one work? Because if it didn't, I got something else up my sleeve. And uh, you know, this poor guy saying, regaining his sight, I, I see people, but, but they look like trees walking. Regaining his sight is the right translation. Not all translations have that. But he was a man who was not born blind. That's somebody else in John 9. nine. But he looks and he says, but I'm going to give you a complaint. You did this terrible thing to my face. And still people don't look right. I know what people look like. And they don't look like trees walking. Then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Not mentioned by Matthew or Luke, just cut out. This is criterion of embarrassment. Here's the thing that Jesus does. It's a two-stage healing too. It doesn't work the first time completely. It's all for an object lesson about what comes in the very next passage, but it's a fascinating thing that Matthew and Luke just didn't need the headache of trying to explain that. Now, the last pericope or story is about the women at the tomb, the first witnesses to the empty tomb. In Mark 16, 1 through 6, we read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought aromatic spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, at sunrise, they went to the tomb. Then as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. These women go into the empty tomb. They are the first witnesses to the empty tomb. And they realize Jesus has been raised. That's what the angel tells them. Well, there's a problem of women as the first witnesses to the empty tomb. The problem is that women's testimony in first century Palestine was essentially worthless. If you're going to create the story of the resurrection, you are not going to have women be the first witnesses. Now, today, no problem. But in that day, there was a bit of a problem. Josephus, for example, said women are disqualified as witnesses in court because of their inherent vanity and rashness. I bet you'd all like to just meet Josephus. Just, just, just one punch is all I need. Oh, that proves that you're rash. But anyway. Ancient rabbinic sources said that the testimony of 100 women is worth no more than the testimony of one man. Their testimony was considered worthless. If you're going to invent the resurrection, you do not put women at the empty tomb as the first witnesses to the empty tomb. 
It can't be an invented story. This is an embarrassment to the church. They're trying to get people to believe in Jesus, but they won't lie about the facts. So the problem of the women as the first witnesses, if the early church invented the resurrection of Jesus, why would they have women as the first witnesses? There's just no good reason to come up with it. So summary, we've looked at five things. The text, do we even know what Mark wrote? Yes, we have a very good idea of what he wrote. The gospel according to Peter, which is Mark's gospel. Memory in an oral culture, we looked at three things about how memory worked back then and how different it is from today. What's in a name, we skipped. And embarrassing stories about Jesus. Let me give you a conclusion. As George Tyrell famously summed up the liberal views of Jesus in his day, which was a century ago, The Jesus that these scholars see is only the reflection of a liberal Protestant face seen at the bottom of a deep well. In other words, what these liberal views have been doing for over a century now is they look at Jesus in the Gospels and they say, I don't like this, I don't like this, I'm going to come up with reasons why this is not authentic. And they end up having a Jesus who looks like themselves. Nothing has changed. Liberal scholars have a Jesus the sage, Jesus the cynic, Jesus the prophet who was mistaken, Jesus the political revolutionary. In fact, one scholar said, for just about every exegete, that is New Testament scholar out there, there's a different Jesus. Why would that be the case? Because they want one that looks like themselves. It's very interesting and, in fact, very ironic that Robert Funk and the Jesus Seminar said this in the five Gospels. Beware of finding a Jesus entirely congenial to you. And that's exactly what they did. They cut out all of his prophecy, said, we know that no one can prophesy, so that's not the real Jesus. Well, that's congenial to them because they are naturalists in the sense that they're not supernaturalists. They don't think uh, that uh, God intervenes in our world. Well, let's talk about Mark's Jesus. If anything, he makes us uncomfortable, he confuses us, and he demands radical repentance and total devotion. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That means you are living a life now where you are committed to die for me. Every day, we need to live our lives in such radical devotion to him that we would be willing to be crucified. That's Mark's Jesus. He is anything but congenial to us. And that Jesus has changed millions of lives. He is both the Christ of faith and the Jesus of history. Thank you very much.